Well, if you're visiting with us here this morning and you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. And you are welcome to raise your hand and our fellows at the back will make sure you have one if you need one. title of the message this morning is, Have We Forgotten the Basics? Have We Forgotten the Basics? I'm not sure if I can adequately explain what's going on in my brain. <laughs> some of you are thinking I've known that for quite some time now. But uh, allow me to try this morning. I, I believe it's what God would have me to speak on today. So let me begin by just giving you two thoughts that have been rolling through my brain the last couple weeks. Number one, life consists of us taking steps that allow us to move forward. Let me say that again. Life consists of taking steps that allow us to move forward. Put that back in your noggin somewhere and then couple that with this next statement. Much of life's experiences build upon previous experiences, which in turn help us to grow. Does that make sense? Much of life's experiences build upon previous experiences, which in turn help us to grow. For example, you can't advance to second grade unless you first complete first grade. Wow, you guys are awesome. I mean to tell you, you guys are way out there. Give you another one. You don't advance to junior high without first completing elementary, right? And you don't get to advance to senior high without first completing junior high. Wow, you guys are way doing well. And typically, you don't get to go to college unless you complete high school. You see, advancing in education is predicated upon the fact that each grade level educates you in fundamental essentials you need to know in order to grow and to help you move forward, right? So that gets back to my statement. Life consists of taking steps that allow us to move forward. And those life experiences, coupled with previous experiences, help us to grow. So we have an order that allows us to move forward to grow. Most often, regardless of your chosen field or career path, you don't start off at the top, right? I mean, you don't graduate from college and all of a sudden, boom, you're the president of the company. I know some people would like that, but it doesn't work that way. Uh, you don't often start right out of college uh, in a high-level administrative position, right? Uh, rarely does anyone start in a place of, of supervisory authority. Typically, the basics must be learned before advancement happens, right? So we get the idea that we all have to start somewhere and... Through all these steps, it helps us to grow, it helps us to move forward, and we use those experiences to help us move forward, and we learn from them, and sometimes we're cut back a step or two, but then we start moving forward again, and we begin to grow. So this is where I get to that part where I start off my message. This is what I'm referring to when I said that I'm not sure if I can adequately explain what's going on through my brain. It seems when it comes to Christianity... It seems like, it feels like, and I could be wrong here, but it feels like we skip the basics so often. We kind of live as though we already are past all of that. You say, well, what do you mean by that? 
I mean that there are so often times in the history of a church, in a given chapter of a church, where there's an influx of people, and all of a sudden time passes without you even realizing it. You know, so-and-so came, boy, it seemed like two weeks ago, but really it was four years ago they came in. Or so-and-so came in, boy, the next thing you know, they've been here 12 years already. How did that happen? And something doesn't happen, and therefore many Christians don't begin to move forward. Does that make sense? Something is missing, and I believe it's the basics. We talk a lot in churches across America about how we're about this. You, you see, I was taught a long time ago that if someone has a reputation, it's for one reason. They've earned it. And you know, churches have reputations too. Some churches are known for their big drama programs. Every Easter, every Christmas, and boy, I know in Indiana where I was from, boy, when you talk about the living Christmas tree, it was Blackhawk Baptist. That's what they were known for. Various churches around our area are known for, they have a reputation from whatever it is that they do or have become. And I wonder, what would be our reputation as a church in our community? I wonder what we would be noted for. I don't really know that we have a good answer for that yet. And I'm not necessarily saying it's a bad thing or a good thing. I'm just posing the question. What is it that we would be known for? All too often, Christianity is known for what it's against more than what it's for. But when it comes down to people in the body of Christ, I wonder if sometimes we haven't skipped the basics and have begun to live as though we're past that already. And as I see in Scripture, there are some things that we need not skip. Because if we skip them, we won't be what God wants us to be as a church. And if I was trying to find a quote on, my, uh, on the internet this week. It's from Red Arbach. Anybody remember Red Arbach? That kind of puts us back a few years. He had a comment, and I'm sure I won't say it exactly as he said it, but I remember my basketball coach saying it to me when I was in high school. He said, this is a ball. It's got rubber in it. It's coated with leather. And when you throw it to the ground, it will come back up to you again. The guys were making simple mistakes. And he said, we've forgotten how to dribble the ball. And I think sometimes in church, we have forgotten the basics. We live as though we're past that. I want to challenge us not to live there. Because if we live as though we've already gotten past that, we'll become ineffective as believers. We'll become ineffective. And I'll show you where I'm going with this in just a moment. So if you would, turn your Bibles to Matthew 28. Um, I know that as I tell you to go there, this is something I've preached on many times. It's an extremely familiar passage to all of us. And I know you've heard teaching on it many, many times. But humor me one more time as we go back to this passage. Um, Jesus had just resurrected from the grave. In fact, let's look at verses 1 through 10. Typically, when we go to Matthew 28, go right to the end of the chapter and boom, we're into it. But let's look at the beginning of the chapter just for a moment. It says, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake, because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone as, and was sitting on it. 
His appearance was like lightning, and his robe was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken from the fear of him that they became like dead men. Can you imagine? Put yourself in those sandals just for a moment. I mean, think about that. I mean, just the vivid picture that's in our minds from seeing that. A violent earthquake. An angel of the Lord rolls back the stone, and he's just kind of sitting up on top of the stone. I don't know what that stone looked like. I, you know, we kind of get these little cute little Sunday school pictures. It's a nice, perfectly round stone. It's kind of rolled in a way. I don't, I don't think it was that way. I think it was probably a little more rough than a perfectly round circle that was just kind of rolled into place. It was probably not real pretty. But can you imagine an angel sitting up there, just kind of checking out the sights? Oh, we got some visitors coming to... Oh, wait a minute. He rolled back the stone was sitting on. His appearance was like lightning, and his robe was like white as snow. Just get that in your mind for a minute. Verse 5. But the angel told the women, Don't be afraid, because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has been resurrected, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead. In fact, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So they're given instruction. He goes, you can come in here and see where he was laying, but he's not there. In fact, I want you to go tell all the disciples that he's on his way to Galilee. Verse 8. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. I mean, put those two emotions together. They're afraid, but yet there's excitement. They ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then, Jesus met them and said, Good morning. They came up, took hold of his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus told them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. I mean, he's got the word out. I'm going to Galilee. I want you to tell everyone to meet me there. I want you to just, just go do it. And they did. Think about that just for a moment. How often are we that apt to obey what God tells us to do? I mean, just, just let that sink in just for a moment. Well, why do I need to go to Galilee? What's going to be in Galilee? Why do, why do I have to go there? I mean, you ever met that person that questions every cotton-picking little thing you tell them? I know your kids have never done that. But why? <laughs> but Why? <laughs> Just go! And they did it. I love this. It says, tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. Now notice down in verse 16 and 17. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee. They did what they were told. To the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me, in heaven and on earth. Now think about that just for a moment. Go to, the, go to Galilee. They all went to Galilee. And the second time they come before him and worshipped him. Yeah, they have the doubters. But they're about to see as Jesus drew near to them who Jesus was. Sometimes we focus on the wrong part of this verse here. Or the wrong aspect of the verse. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what I want us to get back to in the basics. Sometimes we focus on the wrong aspect of the word go. It's not necessarily the idea of, i got to go to another country. I have to go be a missionary. I have to go somewhere to do the work of the Lord. That's not necessarily the key point of the passage. The go is better translated as you go or as you are going. Put that into our everyday vernacular. As you are leaving your house, as you go to school, as you go to the grocery store, as you go to work, as you talk to the neighbor across the fence, as you are walking down the street going for a walk, as you are going about your daily business, you are going baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching is the means or the how of discipleship and making disciples. And I believe two things have taken place in the church. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about churches across America and around the globe. Two things I think have happened. Number one, we have forgotten the powerful significance of baptism. I really believe that. We have forgotten the powerful significance of that. And number two, teaching has not consistently taken place in the context of discipleship. That's why I believe that all across America we have people who come into the church and they're there for a little while and next thing you know, like, well, where'd so-and-so go? What happened to them? And then you find out they're not going to church anywhere. And there's lots of possibilities there, but discipleship as a whole, churches talk about it, but it doesn't always take place. And sometimes we put discipleship in a box and say, you have to go through this material and then you are discipled. That's not it. That's not it. But there is a teaching that needs to take place to help people become grounded in their faith. And if you don't become grounded in your faith and learn what God's Word expects of us, then you become ineffective and don't do what God asks you to do. You see, I've said two things since I've come to this church in seven years almost. I want to pastor a healthy church. And you've heard me say this a hundred times. Healthy things grow. I don't care what the number is. That, that's up to God. But healthy things grow. And it starts from inward and comes outward. And secondly, I want to pastor a church that has impact. I want to have an impacting church. I want to be a part of something where God is at work and it's evident that God is at work. I want to have impact in our world that we live in, Right? If we're not going to have impact, why bother? Right? Is that true? We want to have an impact in the world that we live. And it's not Harvest Bible Fellowship. It's the people who are impacting the world that we live in. So it's amazing how many times across my computer in a given week, growth strategies come out constantly. This email, that mail, that email, this book, that book on growth. And I'm just to the point where I don't want to see another growth strategy. Because I believe that if we are healthy, we will have impact. If we're not healthy, we won't have impact. And the health comes from us being in a right relationship, walking obedience to Jesus Christ. So, allow me to explain those two points just one more time. 
We've forgotten the powerful significance of baptism, and sometimes teaching doesn't take place in the context of discipleship. Number one, baptism is a very powerful in what it portrays. It really is a call to repentance and commitment. Think about that. Baptism is truly a call to repentance and commitment. Take your Bibles just for a moment and turn over to the book of Romans, chapter 6. You've heard me explain this before, but I want, us to, I want this to sink in. Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. It says, what should we say then? Should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? I mean, that's a fair question. I mean, what does it really matter, I mean, if we live in sin? Because we know that God's gracious, we know that He's going to forgive us. I mean, that's His Word, right? 1 John 1 says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. So what does it really matter how I live? Because all I have to do is go get confession and boom, done, over, and right? I mean, except for the fact that He answers that question in verse 2. Absolutely not. He says you cannot continue in sin if you are a, tri- a child of God. Some of your translations might say, God forbid that we do that. That is strong language. Is it not? That is strong language. He says, God forbid we take that grace and cheapen it. So he says, absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or, verse 3, are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Once again, that's why I always explain when someone is baptized, when we stand in the water, we form a what? A cross. And as we are standing before, the cross, before our congregants, we are saying publicly, I am identifying with Jesus Christ who died on the cross and is my Savior. I am identifying my life with Christ. And that's, what the, that's when we begin to see the powerful significance of baptism. Go on here, verse Four, it says, therefore we were buried with him in, by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. So as Christ died on the cross, he shed his blood for our, and, and offered his, his, his shed blood as a forgiveness of our sins, he put it to death. We're putting to death the old man, the way we were before Christ came into our life. That is powerful, because we are saying no to the old life, we are saying no to who we were before Christ, and we're saying we're not going to live that way any longer. There has to be a change, because we are identifying with Christ, His death, His resurrection, and just as we go under the water, we are publicly, before God's people, saying, I'm identifying my life with Christ, and I am putting to death who I was before Christ, and when I come up out of the water, I'm resurrecting in new life before Christ. We forget that. And when Jesus Christ says, go and make disciples and baptize them, we are really calling them to repentance. Repenting of the life that they're living and inviting them to a new relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? We forget that. It's not just about going through the waters of baptism. It's much greater than that. Then he goes on here, verse 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. He said there's a change that has to take place in our life. And if we call ourselves a Christian, a Christ follower, one who has a relationship with Jesus Christ, 
then we ought not to be living like the world. Because that life was crucified. That life was atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So there has to be a difference. Who we were before Christ and who we are now ought to be starkly different one from the other. We're not in the world. Or we're not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. What characterizes the world should not be what characterizes us as his followers. There has to be a change. Who we are, how we talk, how we live, there should be a difference. And I think sometimes we forget the powerful significance that the picture of baptism portrays. I was sharing with the guys in Africa. I had a guy come to me one time and he said, boy, I really know I need to be baptized. I really should be baptized. He goes, I got, God's, God's shown me that. He said, but I, was just, I, I got a request, Pastor. And I said, what's that? And he goes, can I get baptized you know, after everyone leaves church? Can, it, can you just do it in the auditorium without anybody there? And he was dead serious. And I said, no. And he kind of looks at me and he goes, why not? And I said, because it's a public profession of faith. And it shows that I'm not ashamed to identify with Christ. And I said, it's an opportunity for you to portray that you are a follower of Christ to your family and friends. But if you're ashamed to do it in front of them, what does that say? We should boldly say, I want to identify with Christ. And by the way, if you're visiting with us here today, that's why sprinkling is unbiblical. I can't portray the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through sprinkling. I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, will you baptize my baby? No, I can't. Because belief must precede baptism. You see that throughout Scripture. But baptism is a powerful testimony. And it has great significance. Down to verse 15. says, What then? Should we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Absolutely not. Don't you know that if you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of that one you obey? either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But thank God that although you used to be slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were transferred to. And having been liberated from sin, you became enslaved to righteousness. When we put to death the old man, as we crucified the old man in Christ, before, of who we were before we became believers in Jesus Christ, that lifestyle was put to death. That enslavement to sin was abolished. And when we came up, is a portraying of a new life in Christ. And I'm no longer enslaved to that. We are now, according to Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, I'm slave, I used to be a slave to sin, but now I'm a slave to Jesus Christ. And it's a voluntary thing. I willingly place myself under the authority of Jesus Christ. And then he says, not only baptizing them as we are going calling them to repentance and commitment to Jesus Christ, to commitment to a new life in Him. But it's also about observing everything that I've commanded you. So we asked this question before, what is a disciple? If we were to go back into biblical days and say what, and answer that simple question, what is a disciple? I think it really comes down to this simple definition. Number, here it is. A disciple is one who follows his master, learns everything his master can teach him, and then puts it into practice everything he has learned. It's really simple. He follows his master, 
learns everything that his master can teach him, and then he puts what his master has taught him into practice. That's a disciple. In other words, if we're following Jesus, we want to learn everything that we can learn about him so that we can put it into practice into our own lives, right? That's being a disciple. So, I come back to this question then. Going back to the basics, what was it that was expected of the early disciples? I mean, what was so significant, so important, that Jesus used his last words to command them? His last final days. He goes to the cross. He's buried. He rises again. says, meet me in Galilee. They all gather around there. And one of his final words is what? Now go and make disciples. Baptizing them and teach them everything I've commanded you. At that moment, they were re to reproduce what they had learned from Jesus Christ in the lives of those that they would come in contact with. Right? We kind of think, well, that's, that, was, that was a command given to the disciples. And I would say, amen. It was. But what was the message? Everything that I've taught you, you teach to others. And then that person is to teach others. And then that person is to teach others. I think it's time that we as a church get back to that. Get back to making disciples. Get back to living the life that God has called us to live. Turn over to Luke chapter 14, if you would. Let's look at a couple aspects of these disciples. In fact, as you're turning to Luke 14, I want to read one verse from John 8. John 8, verse 31 says this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. Question, do we continue in his word? Let's just be honest. Because I feel like I fall so, fall so short in this area sometimes. I can hear some of you saying, well, Pastor, it shouldn't be just duty. I get it. But do we yearn to know the heart of Jesus? Because I feel like I fail at that. Because I feel like this world that we live in pushes and prods and pulls and yanks and pushes and shoves in a direction that we don't need to go in so often. My flesh is strong. I don't know about you, but I know mine. I just know that it's hard sometimes because we're so selfish. Maybe you are too. Maybe not. Maybe you got that one conquered. But the reality is it's hard sometimes. If you continue on my word, what does it mean to continue in the word? It means that you're going to be faithful at learning and growing and applying and doing, and being, and learning, and growing. Why? Because it's a relationship with Jesus Christ. So he says in John 14, 26, and you have to look at verse 25, the crowds were traveling with him, and all of a sudden he turns to the crowd, 
And remember, the crowd. There's always going to be a crowd. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I think to myself, good Lord. Isn't that what we all want? We all want that picture-perfect, beautiful family, right? Who of us doesn't want that? I mean, I, I know that my wife looks at me and she goes, you're, you're becoming a sap. And I, I am. I, I, it's just like I see little kids and I see, you know, and I think, man, I love my family. I love my kids. I, I, love, I love spending time with them. I don't get enough of it sometimes, just like you don't. And, and I just like, don't we all want that just wonderful family? Don't you just love every moment of watching our kids grow up? It seems like just yesterday I was holding Jake on my belly, which was really easy to do in those days. Um, still is. I'm just telling you, I love those days. I loved them. I, I hated it when Jake started walking because all of a sudden he wouldn't stay with me anymore. He wanted to take off. And I'm just like, and you love every moment of it, every chapter of it, right? And then all of a sudden you read about this verse and he says, if you don't hate father and mother, what's he saying here? I have to hate them? No. But you have to love God more in comparison. In contrast to my love for my family, yeah, it would be obvious I love God more. I wonder if that's true for all of us. I'll preach to myself this morning, folks, just so you know. I'll preach to myself. I wonder if that's true for me. Or do I love other things more? I think it's awfully hard sometimes to be real honest and subjective about these things. Because, once again, we got saved a long time ago. Or we've already gotten past that stage. Or we've moved on from that. And I wonder if we truly have learned what God wants us to learn in getting back to the basics. In Luke chapter 9, you can keep your finger there in Luke 14, but in Luke chapter 9, verse 57, he says this. As they were traveling on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has not no place to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me, Lord, he said. First let me go bury my father. But he told him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and spread the news of the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first... Let me go and say goodbye to those at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'm like, ouch. Mm. That's hard. Anybody agree? Who of us is totally committed? I stand guilty. Because I've allowed a lot of things in this world. Good things. To crowd out what may be best at times. That's hard. Then he goes on to say in Luke 14, verse 27. We know what verse 26 says, but 27 says, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A true disciple not only loves God more than anyone or anything else, but a true disciple denies himself and takes up his cross. That's hard to do. And why is that? 2 Timothy chapter 3 answers that question, I believe. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, listen to this. It says, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. 
For people will be lovers of self. Let's just stop right there. Is that not our world? Think about that. Is that not our world, yes or no? I'm out for number one. I'm out what's best for me. I'm, out what ple- I'm all about what pleases myself. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers without self-control, brutal, without love for what's good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the form of godliness but denying its power. He says, avoid these people. It's hard to avoid what we're in the mix of sometimes. Are we willing to deny ourselves? Everything I just read is pictures of many people around us. And God says, avoid these people. Why? Because birds of a feather flock together. You spend too much time with them, you become like them. And there ought to be a difference between those of us who truly know Jesus and those who don't. Gives us a third one in Luke 14, verse 28. He says, For which of you wanting to build a tower doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? I think in Luke chapter 14, verse 28, there's a question here. Have we considered the cost of the commitment at hand? I don't think we have preaching to myself this morning I don't think we've considered the cost of the commitment one thing I've noticed in many parts of the world as I've traveled I saw it all throughout Mexico I saw it in India I saw it in four countries of Africa now unfinished buildings everywhere you look everywhere Um, and it blows my mind you say, well, why? You ask the question, why are there so many unfinished buildings? Well, they, you know, they, they buy a little bit and then they build a little bit and they buy a little bit and then they build a little bit, little bit. And but here's the overriding factor in my mind: you started on a four-story building or a three-story building, and you've got side walls that go up three floors, but the floors are not finished. Buy a little bit, get a little bit, build a little bit, buy a little bit, build a little bit, buy a little bit, build a little bit. For what you have in three stories, you could have finished the first floor altogether. But it's the big picture. I want a three-story. And therefore, for wanting a three-story, the first story will never get done. Have you considered the cost? Not really. And how often in our Christian life have we not considered the cost of the commitment? Or, over the years, what I've noticed in every ministry I've been a part of, we have people who are committed to their hobbies. They're committed to the sports programs that they're a part of. I mean, practice four or five nights a week. But when it comes to church and helping God's work to go forward I just don't have the time I don't have the money I don't have the wherewithal but we're committed to ten other things so it's not a matter of not having time we all have the time we need I say I'm busy we can all reprioritize and find time to do the things that we want 
But I'm wondering, according to Luke 14, 28, have we considered the cost of the commitment? And if we haven't, we need to. What is it that God really requires of us? I think, first of all, he says it's required of a steward that he be what? Faithful. Not just in those areas that's convenient. And Luke 14, verse 33, gives us one more mark of a disciple. He says, in the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not say goodbye to all his possessions cannot be my disciple. There has to be a willingness to forsake what we have to follow. God may never ask you to give up what you have. He may never do it. In fact, I found most time and most everyone I've ever known that's followed Christ, very few people have been asked to give up everything. But let me pose the question. What if he did ask you? What if he did? Would you do it? What if he did? Could you do it? And then I have to ask this question. What is it that's nearest and dearest to my heart? For most of us, it's family. Could I walk away from family to do what God asked me to do? Would I be willing? Would I be willing to sacrifice anything in this life, anything in this world that I live in, to be fully committed to Jesus? He said, that's what disciples do. In Mark chapter 10, Oops, wrong way. Mark 10 and verse 17. It says, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good but one, God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not be a defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Then looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But he was stunned at his, this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Let me just say this. I've said it many times. It's not wrong to have possessions. We all have them. But what is wrong for the possessions to have you? Verse 23 says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? But the disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So they were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. I wonder if we are willing to give up what is nearest and dearest to us. Would we be willing to say, Lord, I give them up to fully commit to following you? I'm reminded every time I go into one of these other countries, I think of my worst day. I think of the day that things just aren't going right. When someone has disappointed me, my expectations weren't met. Well, it was just kind of a day. And then I think, most of these people in these third world countries would love to have that day. 
They really would. We don't get the concept of that. Because we're so absorbed in the culture that we live in. We're absorbed into it. It's part of our fabric. It's who we are. And I was reminded as I was teaching one day, there's Togolese culture, there's an American culture, but really none of those should matter. It should be a Bible culture. It's not what we do here in America or what you do there in Togo. It really comes down to what does God's word say? Or any other country for that matter. Are we immersed in a Bible culture more than we are a American culture? So getting back to my earlier point, discipleship was not what or discipleship was one of the basics of the early Christian life. The commission is not necessarily going to another country to become a missionary. It's about the normal expectation of the church and the Christian life in Jesus Christ here and now. As I am going about, am I being a witness? Am I teaching? It's not the job of a pastor to do that. Any more than it's your job. Right? Would you agree with that? That's a little weak. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I thought you all put that responsibility on me alone. No. It's all of us. Right? But I wonder, when's the last time? I want us to be honest about it. And I'm preaching to myself here. When's the last time we prayed said, God, open up a door of opportunity today that I could be a witness, that I could have an impact on someone else's life, that I could share my faith with, that, God, you would just allow me to encourage them in the word of the Lord? When's the last time we prayed that? And then what about looking for those opportunities? Let's be honest. Are we too absorbed into our own life, our own commitments, our own desires, our own self-pleasing to be part of that. We must get back to taking steps. Remember, this is all about taking steps to move forward. We have to get back to taking steps to help us move forward in our faith and our obedience to Jesus Christ and His Word. We have to take those steps. Otherwise, we become inefficient and accomplish nothing. And this life is not about pleasing ourselves and building up our own kingdom. It's about building his kingdom. Amen? We must take the things that we have learned and teach others those things. Every one of us, has been said, should have a Moses and a Timothy. Let me explain that. Every one of us in this room needs to have a Moses in our life. You know who a Moses is? Someone older and wiser that's learning, that we're learning from, that's teaching us, that we're willing to listen to, that we're willing to submit to. God's given me a couple Moseses over the years, people that even at times tell me things I do not want to hear, but they're right in telling me. I didn't want to hear it, but they were right. So let me ask you a question. Who's the Moses in your life that you're willing to listen to, learn from, be mentored by, 
be instructed from. And every one of us needs a Timothy. Somebody that you're imparting wisdom and direction into. Someone that you're investing in. Someone that you're mentoring. Somebody that you're praying for and praying with. Our life is not about ourselves. I wonder if we would pray, God, give me a Moses, give me a Timothy, if God wouldn't do that. And by the way, that's just scriptural. It says in scripture that the older women were to teach you. What? What? There we go. I had to make sure you're all hearing it. God's word says the older were to teach the younger. Ladies, you have been around the block a time or two. You have so much wisdom. You have so many life experiences that you can take the word of God and impart that into the life of a younger person. And you younger people, you need to listen. Some of you men, you've been around the block a time or two. You've got some things to say to the young guys. Young guys, you need to listen. They'll help you. They'll help you grow. They'll help you move forward. If we do it. We need to take those steps. And we must take the things we have learned and teach others. Just as a third grade student can't advance to junior high until he or she completes elementary, neither will a new believer grow in their faith until he or she has learned the basics of obedience in God's word. We need to get back to the basics. If it was important enough for Jesus Christ before he departed this earth to say, go, now take everything that I've taught you and impart it, that wisdom, that teaching into the life of other people around you, if it was important for them, shouldn't that not be important to us? Amen? Let's do it. Let's do it. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't grow because of programs or pragmatism. It's not about having a big concert so everybody comes to our church Friday night. The church doesn't grow because of pragmatic things or programs. The church will grow internally from the inside out as we walk in obedience to Jesus Christ and we put a commitment of doing the basics back into the priorities of our life. It grows through healthy Christians obeying the call. And how is this accomplished? Let me just say this up front. There's not one of us in this room that can do it by ourselves. We can't. I think that's why God's word says in Acts 1.8, ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now you can go and be my witnesses. You can't do it in and of your own strength. You can't. I can't, you can't. None of us can. We need the Holy Spirit to be working in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit to be guiding, directing us, empowering us. And guess what? He says, it's there. That's why they're not we're taking advantage of it. I don't know about you, but this is just a reminder to basically come back to full obedience to Jesus Christ. Just simple obedience. Putting him first. Come back to one more point, I'll close. I just find it amazing that these people, as they're going to the tomb, the angels tell the Marys, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. Is that a big point? Oh, no, not really, other than just this one point. Well, why do I got to tell them that? Well, well what are we going to do when we get there? 
They didn't ask a thousand questions. They just said, let's go. And then when they got to where the disciples were, hey, Jesus said to meet him in Galilee, let's go. Well, what are we going to do when we get there? <laughs> they didn't ask that. They just did it. Let's quit questioning God and what he's asking us to do. Quit questioning and just do it. I think if we just be committed to being an obedient person, obedient child of God, we'll see his hand at work. We don't have to know the end from the beginning. That's God's prerogative. We don't have to know the whys. We just need to do it. And let him work. Amen.